Hey, everybody, and welcome home. This is going to be one of those unique Sundays at Sugar Hill Church because we're talking about the church and politics. And as one of my good friends said at dinner, what were you thinking, Chuck? I mean, don't we all know, and how many times have we heard? If you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table, there are several things you just don't talk about. You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about politics. You don't talk about money. And the problem is today, we're going to talk about all of that, but primarily about the church and politics. Now, you know, here's what I know about the church and politics. I don't even know where to start, especially in this season of our political upheaval. I don't think I've ever seen America more divided than she is right now. I would be willing to say this might be the most divided America we have experienced since the Civil War. Now, contrary to some people, I wasn't around at that time, but the fact is that was enough divisiveness that it broke out into war. I believe we have enough divisiveness in America today that we have broken out into an intellectual and social war. And often it is simply because we cannot seem to give any grace to somebody who doesn't think the way we do. Well, when you think about that, I wanted to get started with some good news. I read this story the other day. I thought this was fascinating. Okay, this is a story called The Mitchells, and I think you'll enjoy this. It starts off by saying, we don't see them as Democrats. They're the Mitchells. We know they're good people who live next door. We love them. In a country where 93%, get this folks, 93% of Americans say civility is a problem in the good old US of A, this story in the Wall Street Journal ought to be some pretty welcome nude. We meet the Gates family. The good news is the Gates family who are lifelong Republicans. Now, being Republican isn't the good news. The good news is that when we meet the Gates family, they live next door to the Mitchell family. Now, we have lifelong Democrats in the Mitchells and lifelong Republicans in the Gates. And these two families, next door neighbors in suburban Pittsburgh, PA, and the Gates family, they, they display a Trump yard sign in their yard. And you, you know how that is. You've got one of those big old honking Trump 2020 Make America Great signs. And then the Mitchell home has a Biden sign, Build Back Better. And they're side by side. Can you imagine how, how much fun it is for people to ride by those two houses? But next to each other, there is a sign at the corner of each of their homes, one pointed this way, one pointed that way, and they say the same thing, which is, we heart them. In other words, they've decided that there's a way in which they could see things politically very differently, and yet, they could figure out how to be civil and love one another. It's kind of like the Republican and Democrat that are running for the gubernatorial office in the state of Utah. They came together on their debate and on their stage, they literally said, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a Democrat running for governor. And the other guys, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a Republican and I'm running for governor. But honestly, we both want the best for Utah. We just see a different path to doing that. But they decided they would have a civil debate about how they would govern the state. What a refreshing concept that we could actually do that in America today. 
Well, let's go back to the Mitchell family and the Gates family. They each have three kids, roughly the same ages. So they played together and they've been together and they've cooked out together. They share a love for hockey. The boys play on the same team. They gather for dinner every Monday night. And as the Wall Street Journal notes, they don't argue, they don't label each other. They listen to each other's perspective. They look for common ground and recognize that reasonable and good people, and I want to quote this last part, can reach different conclusions. Okay, that is a foreign concept when we talk about the church and politics. Somehow or another, I'm not sure, but somewhere along the way, some parties claim some churches and other parties claim the other church. And in the meantime, I think the problem might be the church is not up for sale depending on who's running for what. Jillian Mitchell, she's 14. Now remember, the Mitchells are lifelong Democrats, but they have a sign in their yard pointing toward the gates that say, we heart them. Listen to what she had to say in the article. She said, I'm not a voter, but I think people should be mature and not argue all the time or fight. Fighting just leads to more fighting. I mean, it was almost like she pulled something straight out of the book of Proverbs and said, Could we not find some common ground by which we could determine we want the best for folks and believe the best in folks? You know, we can embrace our global church family tightly and we can also learn how to hold our political commitments a little more loosely, I think. This gives us room for grace and it gives us room for understanding and a terribly divisive culture. But that's up to us. We get to make that choice. We decide what are we going to cling to. Are we going to cling to those things that are religious and those things that are passionate? And let me go in so far to say those things that are convictional. Or do we want to hold tight to those things that are preferential and those things that we believe that politically make more sense? Here's what I would say. If we're not holding on to that which is convictional, what we will choose politically could very well be wrong. As urgent as political peacemaking might be, the ultimate key to peace is not political. A Persian proverb quoted by Kyle Thomas, one of my favorite authors, is still pretty relevant. Listen to the proverb. It says, there can never be peace between nations until it is first known that true peace is within the souls of men. The prophet Isaiah said to the Lord God in Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The prophet Isaiah was saying, this is how we find perfect peace. We get our mind focused on the Lord God and we learn to trust in him solely. Jesus told his disciples in John 16.33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Paul testified in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. I fear that while we live in a broken and a sinful world, and clearly we do, and clearly this world is a mess, we taking time to argue over laws and platforms and personalities and media foolishness while sitting at home, keeping the gospel safely tucked away to our own self and to our own home, And we keep it from the people that are desperately in need, but yet we want them to vote, but we just don't want to share our faith with them. Is it me or does it feel like we've gotten the scales a bit lopsided? Tim Keller, a great guy, one, one of my favorite Christian authors said this. He said, the gospel gives us the resources to love people who reject both our beliefs 
and us personally. Let me read that again. The gospel gives us the resources to love people who reject both our beliefs and us personally. Christians should think of how God rescued them. What a great line. We should be focused on how God rescued us. He didn't take us by power, but by coming to earth, losing glory and power, serving and dying on a cross. And how did Jesus save? Not with a sword, not with a scepter, but with nails in his hands. When we see our life in that way, especially in this political season, we will have to stop and wonder, can we respectfully disagree? Because civility is a major challenge and a major problem in America. The Oxford English Dictionary offers 13 different definitions of civility. Fascinating, isn't it? And among them, we find things like this, behavior or speech that is appropriate to civil interactions. And unfortunately, among the definitions, it also labels as now obsolete, we find orderly behavior and good citizenship. We also find as obsolete, proprietary and decency. Therein lies the question in this short two-week series, The Church and Politics. How can we make these now obsolete definitions of civility become realities in the middle of this challenging time with politics? In the research document titled Civility in America, Solutions for Tomorrow, a public relations firm, Weber Shandwick, found that 93% of Americans consider civility in America to be a great problem. Now, I read that and I think, duh, all you've got to do is open up social media and see how somebody posts something about one or the other platform and immediately somebody's in attack mode. And it really doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's, maybe it's a Supreme Justice that's, that's been, been nominated, so we blast there. But honestly, what does the American church have to do and how do we fit into American politics? Meaning, where should you fit inside as a follower of Jesus into our political system. Well, let's talk about the elephant or the donkey in the middle of the room, the presidential race right here in 2020. Surely these two guys are not the best representation that America offers, are they? Well, of course they're not because what sane person would put themselves and their family through the scrutiny that these two folks are experiencing now? Let me ask you a question. How do we play a role then in selecting our governmental leaders and others in this great land? Don't we have some role as believers? And the answer is absolutely you do. As a matter of fact, as a follower of Christ, I believe you have an absolute responsibility to engage in politics and do so in such a way that your vote and your voice matters. But let's face it, the scrutiny placed on presidential hopefuls seemed pretty overwhelming to me. I can't even imagine desiring to seek the highest office in the land, knowing that you're going to put yourselves and your family through the crosshairs of the media and the brutality of the American public, especially in our day of social dis and incivility. We're in the messiest of middles since the Civil War. We, we are accosted by a lack of civility and we're serrated by a gross lack of human regard, unlike anything I've seen in my 61 years. Vietnam, race, Watergate, Clinton, Lewiski, 9-11, the Great Recession, and yet here we are living in a world of hate speech and actions of hate, unlike anything I've seen 
in my life. And all over this great divide has been fueled by a lack of civility. What is the role that the church has in politics? I believe it is clear and we'll find God's word to speak to us clearly that we're to be a people of reason and civility, even and most especially with people we disagree with politically. So in this short series, we do want to explore the church's relationship with politics. And while we can't be politically disengaged, we must be fully engaged, but also avoid centering our lives on the pursuit of power and influence. Jesus's words will help guide our political participation and he'll do so by kingdom ideals instead of party platforms. Now that's a big deal. Like when we see platforms that come from one side or the other, I believe overarching all of it, Jesus says, I have a platform that trumps, no pun intended, any of what we offer in this world today because God's kingdom supersedes every political party. The Bible guides us on how to live out our faith inside and around the public square, even when people disagree politically and ideologically, including our government leaders and other brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever noted that civility, though, is something you want the other side to be? Well, they're mean. Well, they're, they're, they're unfair. I, if I just got truly just honest here, you know, Republicans were mean when Clinton was there. Democrats were mean when Bush was there. Republicans were mean when Obama was there. And Democrats are mean when Trump is there. And you know, I don't know who's going to win this week, but what I do know is this, somebody's gonna be angry and mad and there's gonna be lawsuits slung everywhere. And the fact is, we really don't have room for that. A study said that about 10.2 times a week, each American deals with some significant incivility in their life. And when I looked at how they responded to that, in spite of the fact, when asked for personal actions to improve civility, the first response was, let's make an effort to treat people kindly or encourage your friends to be civil. That's what we say, but that's not what we do. Because if you're on social media or if you happen to put some tag or magnet or flag or bumper sticker on your car, you are likely to have somebody that goes in attack mode against you. For Christians though, as we'll see, being people of civility is at the heart of the biblical character and public witness that you're called to walk with as an image bearer of the most high God. The commitments and steps that are necessary to be people of true and consistent character chart the path, not just to civility, but to godliness and the abundant life that Jesus came to give us, especially when you look at John, the gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10. Listen to what it has to say. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give him a rich and satisfying life. When we learn how to be civil with others, we'll learn how to be Christ-like with the world. All right, if you didn't hear a word, I want you to hear that. When we learn how to be civil followers of Jesus, we'll learn how to be more like Christ to our world. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you want to be more like the Democratic platform or more like the Republican platform, or do you wanna become more like Christ? Because here's what we know about how politics come and go, ebb and flow. And that is this, there will be a party that'll be elected this week, hopefully, and we'll settle that at some time. And then we'll rail against that party for four years and we'll do it all over again. 
The ebb and the flow comes and goes, but the alpha and the omega never moves. That Jesus himself is always going to shine his light brightest and it is overwhelming and overcoming whatever platform politics offer. Listen to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter two. Shine as light, speaking to you as believers, especially in this season, shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. As people see Jesus in our actions and hear God's spirit in our words, then they're drawn to the savior for their source of life. If your source of life is Joe Biden or Donald Trump, you're in trouble because what you need is that overarching picture of Jesus. Now listen to what John wrote in chapter six, verse 40. For it is my father's will, Jesus speaking again and speaking of God the father, he says, for it is my father's will that all who see his son and believe in him should have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. No donkey and no elephant can make that promise. This is why as Jesus sees the world and as he sees politics, politics are a minor issue in comparison to eternity. Civility, you see, is the invitation and the commission of God. Civility is the invitation and the commission of God. What follows is organized around three topics, the priority of civility, the person of civility, and the practice of civility. So if you haven't gathered by now that I strongly believe that the word of God has for us civility that is required for how we engage in American politics, let me make it even plainly more obvious. We must make our vote count on policies and platforms that are affirmed by our faith. All right, if, if you missed out on that and you went to the kitchen to grab you know, another glass of orange juice or cup of coffee, let me say it again. We must make our vote count on policies and platforms that are affirmed by our faith, but we must engage our fellow Americans with civility, not inspired or modeled by our political leaders, but by our savior, Jesus the Lord. You see, this is what separates us or should separate us from the rest of the world that we might have our vote that is affirmed by our faith and we also choose to engage our world not with how our political leaders have modeled for us but how Jesus modeled for us. If we go model after Joe Biden or after Donald Trump, we're not offering the model of Christ because I don't think any of us would say, now that's how Jesus would do it. I don't think we would ever say based on the debates we've seen or any of the speeches that have been made or any of the ads that are placed. I don't think any of us as believers would say, now I believe God's really proud of that. As a matter of fact, I think God looks at our political system in 2020 and he says, that's a shame. Why, why can't my children have a vote, voice and a vote that is determined on their faith system built in that of Christ? Back in 2010, there was a fellow by the name of Peter Turchin who predicted that widespread civil unrest would sweep through the United States in 2020. Nobody took him seriously. I mean, this is 10 years ago, and he made the prediction that in 2020, we would have an overwhelming instability and a spike that would occur in civil unrest. He said that because we have a 50-year instability spike that happened in 1870, 1920, 1970, and so another would happen in 2020. He noted that in the United States, and I'm quoting, in the United States, we have stagnating or declining real wages, a growing gap between rich and poor, overproduction of young graduates with advanced degrees, and exploding public debt. 
And these social indicators are actually related to each other dynamically. Then came 2020, a year that began like 1973 with impeachment, then became 1918 with a pandemic, followed by 2008 and hopefully not 1929 with a recession, followed by 1968 with civil unrest in a nationwide sense. In days like this, civility is the urgent need of the hour. And the people that can offer that are people of faith. How did we get here and what's our goal now? Well, in this modern era, we began measuring success in many of our churches by the size of our temples, our buildings, our budgets, and our baptisms. But in this postmodern world, we say that all truth is personal and subjective. Somewhere, we miss the fact that God's word stands alone and gives us truth, and he is in the embodiment of truth itself. But it also says it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're tolerant of somebody else's beliefs and sincere in yours. That just is crazy, folks. Too many Americans have this transactional faith that basically says, if I go to church for one hour on Sunday and I vote for the right party, God's happy. But what if somebody doesn't go to church and they vote for the right party? Is that good? But what if somebody votes and they go to church, but they vote the wrong way? Where do we stand with them? You see, I do believe Jesus says when it comes to church and politics, we've got to stop treating God like a transaction and recognize that our faith in Christ is transformational, not transactional. I don't give because God's going to double my gift. I don't serve because God's going to send people to care for me. We do the right things with the right time, with the right people for the right purpose. And God blesses that because we did it in his name, not in the name of our government. If we pay our spiritual dues, we'll receive result in our investment. That's what transaction says. We have compartments in our lives with God here and the rest of life there. That's transactional. Transformational, though, moves us from what, what I believe the Lord would look at the, our, our churches today and say, they're consumeristic, they're schizophrenic, and the spiritual culture of America is dead because we forgot that God's word offers transformation, not transaction. But listen, friend, I want to take us back to Romans in the scripture in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You say, well, Chuck, does that apply to me and how I vote? It absolutely does. Because if you walk into that booth and you have a renewed mind and you have a full spirit, you will vote your conviction, not what is convenient. And as a believer, this is what we're called to do. When I voted, I voted early the other day. We prayed together, I went in, and I voted based on what I believe was a conviction in my soul. I want to read a bit of an article that was written in the Washington Post by an author by the name of Michael Byrd. Michael Byrd wrote these words, Jesus isn't interested in America's two-party division. Come on, that's good, isn't it? I can't imagine God himself walking through the hallways of heaven going, oh, I, I don't see the Lord freaking out about what's going on, but I just, I don't think he's interested in how we're functioning. For followers of Jesus, Christians, the point of contention, Michael Byrd says, 
should not be whether Jesus is more conducive to Republican or Democratic parties, but whether we are prepared to break from the polarization of our politics to engage in a more authentic mode of discipleship. To follow Jesus will inevitably require us to walk away from long-held political loyalties to reorder our lives around a new constellation of values shaped by Jesus' teaching, his example, his death and resurrection, and his lordship over all things. Following Jesus does not mean that you are apolitical becoming disinterested in the affairs of government. Quite the opposite, in fact, he says. Being a follower of Jesus means trying to forge our own political values based upon the story and the symbols of Jesus himself according to his kingdom, his teaching, and according to the faith delivered once and forever to all the saints. But hear me, church, followers of Jesus shouldn't be prone to argumentative interaction with people for its own sake, but should love even in disagreement. Followers of Jesus, Christians, we must show maturity by not getting caught up in the frivolous arguments of this society inside the incivility of American politics. Instead, we can have a powerful witness by showing grace, by speaking truth in love, and engaging in discernment. Listen to what 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, has to say. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, Pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. Is that good or what? I mean, the scriptures are saying to us, in the middle of this, we are called to a citizenry that is far greater than even our citizenry here in the U.S. of A. But we must become a people that never forget where we truly look for hope, for peace, for strength, for courage, and sustenance. The one that gave us life in abundance and life eternal, Christ the Lord, is, it is his platform that matters. We should be engaged with politics in this country, but never at the cost of surrendering our conviction and our faith. Did you hear me say that? One amen that I could hear across online would be awesome. We should be engaged in politics in this country, but never at the cost of surrendering our convictions and our faith. We should be prepared to give a solid convictional reasoning for our positions and a party and our vote and a platform. We should be able to give a convictional reason why we vote for the person running for office. But friend, if you can give a reason for your political leaning, but you cannot give a reason for your faith, your citizenship is out of order. Because many of us know more about why and how we're voting than we do about what God's doing in this world or what he wants to do in our life. Listen, friend, an eternity after the birth and life of these great United States, the kingdom of God had set forth the rules and the way of life for us to live righteously. Life that would bring peace and hope, grace, love, sustainability, and eternal life. But we must start living our faith in the king of that kingdom if we're to have a faith-filled vote that is in alignment with the king of kings. Maybe today it's a reminder and a time that God has allowed in this sermon and in this teaching and around this election to draw you back into the kingdom of God that you might have a transformational time with God himself that might direct who and how you vote for. If our test of commitment 
to another is based on our political party, then we've substituted civil religion for faith in Christ. And friend, this was never God's plan. Dear friends, let's remember our faith and hope, they're, they're not in a political system or a campaign. My vote is not for a man. My vote isn't really even for a platform. My vote is built on the conviction of my faith that I believe firmly that Christ has directed. How about you? Because if your passion is about red states or blue states, if your passion is about purple states or donkeys or elephants, if your passion is about a man named Trump or a man named Biden, if your passion is about a man named Pence or a woman named Harris, then we have misplaced our passion and we have misplaced the appropriate direction of our heart. Because the only implication that we have in this world that will matter is the compassion and the conviction of his Christ sitting on the throne of your heart and directing your vote and your civility. Let's don't surrender. Let's never surrender our conviction and our faith and our testimony for a vote or in the incivility for somebody that votes differently than we do. Let us be a people that would see beyond that, that would see the greater kingdom. And we might be able to say, you know what? Respectfully, I disagree, but I love you. And let's move on with making sure that Christ is the center of our country, not a political party. Let's pray. God today, speak to us. Many, many of us have already voted. Many of us would yet to vote this week. But God, would you speak into our lives the character of Christ and would you give us this transformational renewing of our mind and our soul and our heart that our vote would be representative of our conviction in you. Not in what our personal beliefs are, not in what, what somebody told us to believe in, but we might have a personal time with you and you might direct our conviction and our conviction would direct our vote. And that conviction would also be that we'd learn to speak truth and love and we might lose this incivility and hate speech that we have across this land and we might as believers lead the way in graciousness and kindness and the fruits of the spirit be with our folks this week and regardless of the outcome and however long it may take let us have a voice of reason and a voice of hope and a voice of civility that is birthed and founded and grounded inside Christ alive and his spirit working within our hearts in the name of Jesus we pray amen God bless you folks. Thanks for joining me for church and politics next week. Hopefully we'll know who won and it'll really shape what we talk about then. God bless you. Go in peace.